I want you to turn in your Bibles to Romans chapter 5. Romans chapter 5. You follow along as I read Romans 5, verses 12 to 21. Romans 5, 12. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin... And so death spread to all men because all sinned. For sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. But sin is not counted where there is no law. Yet death reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam, who was a type of the one who was to come. But the free gift is not like the trespass. For if many died through one man's trespass, Much more have the grace of God and the free gift by the grace of that one man, Jesus Christ, abounded for many. And the free gift is not like the result of that one man's sin, for the judgment following one trespass brought condemnation. But the free gift following many trespasses brought justification. If, because of one man's trespass, death reigned through that one man, much more will those who receive the abundance of grace and the free gift of righteousness reign in life through the one man, Jesus Christ. Therefore, as one trespass led to condemnation for all men, so one act of righteousness leads to justification and life for all men. For as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience the many will be made righteous." Now the law came in to increase the trespass, but where sin increased, grace abounded all the more, so that as sin reigned in death, grace also might reign through righteousness, leading to eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord. We have been considering the manifold theological implications of the Apostle Paul's words here in Romans 5, 12 to 21, under the sermon series entitled, Death in Adam, Life in Christ. And from this crucially important text, and especially from one verse, verse 12, Paul has given the world a definitive answer to the query about how sin has entered the human experience. You remember, if you have been with us over the last two Sundays, that I have given you, from Romans 5.12, four principles. Four principles that speak of how sin has entered the human experience and the implications of it. Do you remember what they were? Number one, sin entered the world through Adam. Verse 12a, sin entered the world through Adam. Number two, death was the result of sin. That's what we see in verse 12b. Thirdly, death spread to all men, verse 12c. And finally, number four, all men are therefore sinners, verse 12d. All of those four principles given to us incredibly in one verse. And if you've been with us, you know that I've initially posed 
And I'm now attempting to answer a whole series of questions that come from Paul's words as given to us here in verse 12. I began posing them in part one of this series two Sundays ago, and I, in our last time together, attempted or at least began to answer the questions from verse 12a. Therefore, just as sin entered the world through one man. You remember I asked a whole host of questions about the tremendous implications of that particular phrase about sin entering the world through one man. It's a provocative phrase. And I won't re-ask all the questions that are posed from this one phrase, which we covered in detail last Lord's Day. However, as to the main question which arises out of this text, namely, was it only Adam's first sin that Paul is referring to here in verse 12? You remember the answer that I gave you was yes. The Apostle Paul is only referring to Adam's first sin when he speaks of sin entering the world. It was through Adam's first sin, as Paul says right here in the first part of verse 12, through one man that sin came into the world of human beings. And this is primarily what he's referencing here. At this point, Paul isn't concerned with describing the sin that occurred in the angelic realm, which we talked a good bit about last time. He's not talking about the sin of Lucifer. That's the first sin, of course, in the creation itself, that is, God creating the angelic realm. That's the first sin that occurred there. But that's not what Paul is talking about here in Romans 5. Here, he's talking about the human realm, the realm of humanity. And right here in Romans 5.12, his point is to speak of the sin which plunged the human race itself into sin, namely the first sin that occurred with human beings, by human beings, in the Garden of Eden. If you remember, I told you that this sin is commonly referred to by theologians as original sin. They, of course, mean something by that, that original sin being the first sin of Adam. But I also told you that that term itself can be misleading, can be somewhat confusing, because Paul is not simply referring or only referring to Adam's first sin. When we say original sin, when you read that in a book, when you hear theologians talking about that, that isn't merely talking about Adam's first sin alone. It's, of course, as does Paul in this text, tell us so much more. And that's why I think a better term might be than original sin, inherited sin. Inherited sin. Because it is the sin not only of Adam in his first sin, but it was also the sin which he then inherited and which we ourselves also inherit as human beings. Inherited sin. Some even use the word imputed sin, even though that particular word that has already been used by Paul, legizimai, is not used in this particular text, although it is strongly implied. And that parallel between Adam and, and Christ, between the first Adam and the last Adam, there is the imputation of Christ's righteousness. It is referred to there. The issue, however, is whether or not Adam's sin is to be imputed to man. And I believe, even though it's not explicitly stated there, it is all around and surrounding this very text. 
So it is legitimate to say the imputation of Adam's sin. So regardless of what you call it, Paul's point is this. Adam sinned a sin, the first sin, the first sin among human beings, and that sin did something not only to Adam, but every other human being in the world. And that's why he says, therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man, he's not only referring to Adam's first sin. That's why he goes on to say, and death through sin, and not just Adam's death but our death as well. And that's the second major principle that I want us to talk about this morning. I mentioned it to you. All death in the world of humanity is as a result of sin. That's what Paul wants us to know regarding this sin of Adam, what it it did, what it produced, what resulted from from it. The principle is derived from that sense of verse 12b, and death through sin. However, as soon as you say that, as soon as you give that phrase, as soon as you read it off the page, another whole host of implicative questions come to your mind. You you don't just read your Bible by saying, just as sin came into the world through one man, and stop your brain from thinking. You've got to move on from that. And when you do, you move on to this next phrase, and death through sin, and you have a whole host of questions in your mind. Namely, what kind of death? What kind of death is Paul referring to here? Or to put it in another way, when Adam sinned, did he experience immediate spiritual death? Or was it immediate physical death? Or was it eternal death? Or was it all three? If he didn't receive immediate physical death, which of course seems obvious from the account in the book of Genesis, what kind of physical death then did he receive at that moment? That's another good question. And did he immediately receive spiritual death? Or did that come later? Or of course, a related question could be asked, were Adam and Eve ultimately delivered from that death? In other words, does Paul, by mentioning Adam as the head of a race of sinners, the race of sinners, sinners whose condemnation is an ultimate hell and an ultimate judgment, does that ultimate hell and ultimate judgment include Adam and Eve themselves? Are they eternally judged? Will they be in hell? What are the consequences from their sin? Will we see Adam and Eve in heaven? That's a provocative question. All of these questions come up here. And isn't it true, based upon the first principle that we learned from verse 12a, that Adam's first sin was inherited by the world of humanity, which would then have major implications for us? Yes. Including death. Death as a result of sin. The implications are far-reaching, far-reaching, and they are also for us as well. If sin entered the world through one man, and death as a result of sin, what does that mean not just for Adam and Eve, but what does that mean for us? And this will be answered, I trust, in this particular second principle and in the third principle. But for now, we need to answer the questions that I've posed regarding Adam's death. And here they are. Here are a couple of answers to these questions. The answer, of course, 
related to the first question that I posed is that when Adam sinned his first sin, he experienced death in every sense of the word. In every sense of the word. Spiritual, physical, and eternal. I want you to go back in your Bibles to Genesis chapter 2 and I want us to see the reality of this death. Genesis chapter 2. Look at verse 16. Genesis 2.16 God said to Adam as he was created, verse 16, And the Lord God commanded the man, saying, You may surely eat of every tree of the garden, complete liberty, but, here's the one restriction, of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat, For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. This was a simple command given to Adam. And by the way, was given to Adam before Eve was around. Which, by the way, is another attestation to the responsibility of Adam for plunging the whole human race into sin. And not Eve, because at that point Eve wasn't even around She had not yet been created. Adam was the head of the race. He was in charge. God had created him first and gave him, even before Eve was around, around, the command that he could eat anything in the garden. That was the allowance. That was the opportunity. That was the incredible blessing with one restriction, that he may not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil For in the day he would do something like that, he would surely die. And since this is, incidentally, the first time death is mentioned in our Bibles, it has to mean all of it, all of the aspects of death, all of the nuances of death. It must have meant death in every sense of the term. It must have meant death in its essence, spiritual, physical, and eternal. Now, Having said that, though, we know from a plain reading of this passage that it didn't mean immediate physical death, right? Because he continued living. Would not have God been just, completely just, to kill him on the spot for his sin against God? Most assuredly. Adam and Eve, ultimately, of course, Eve being created and then being told by her husband, that there was a prohibition and told by God as well that there was a prohibition for one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, that they cannot eat, they must not eat, that if they do, they would die. They had received that very clear, direct, revelatory instruction, command from God, a prohibition. And if they were to do that, they were going to die. They were going to die eternally. They were going to die spiritually They were going to die physically. But we know that in those senses of death, only one occurred immediately. Or two occurred immediately, and one of them was prolonged in one sense because of space and time, that is eternal death, but one was immediately adjudicated by God, and that was what? Spiritual death, that's right. Spiritual death. The Bible teaches us overall 
that when Adam and Eve experienced when they first sinned and immediate spiritual death. You say, well, what's spiritual death mean? Separation from God. That's what it has always meant. Spiritual death means separation from God. That's why when Jesus Christ was hanging on the cross and He gave up His Spirit, Jesus Christ died a kind of spiritual death. You say, cessation of life? No, not so. Because God cannot die. But He experienced spiritual separation from the Father. Hence, His statement on the cross, My God, my God, why hast Thou forsaken me? Which, by the way, was the only time that we have recorded in the Gospels that Jesus did not refer to His Heavenly Father as Heavenly Father, but to Him as God. Why? Because there was an abandoning there. There was a separation. There was a real spiritual separation because of sin between the Father and the Son. Never before and never after, but on the cross, yes, there was spiritual separation. And it had to be spiritual separation because of Jesus' atoning work of sacrifice on the cross on our behalf, because we were spiritually separated from God. That's what Adam and Eve immediately experienced. And every human being who has ever been born, who came from the womb, came to God in an estranged relationship, a spiritual separation. Now, in addition to this spiritual separation from God, Adam and Eve also received a a second kind of death, an eternal death. Immediately upon the heels of their sin, they were eternally dead in their relationship with God. But of course, that didn't happen, at least on a physical level, until later on, but they were still eternally dead. And the reason, of course, is because God is an eternal being. And an eternal being cannot have a relationship with a being who is also eternal when sin exists. You say, wait a minute, are we eternal? Yes, not in the same sense that God is, but we are eternal beings in that God has created every single one of us, believer or unbeliever alike, to be eternally dwelling somewhere. Some in heaven, some in hell but eternal beings nonetheless. And God, the eternal being, the perfection of God, cannot reside with other eternal beings who have sin in their lives, sin in their beings. And so, upon that taking of the forbidden fruit, Adam and Eve died spiritually and they died eternally. They could no longer dwell with God forever. There was no eternal relationship that could be had between them because there was sin. God created Adam, of course, from the dust of the earth, and he was created to live forever. And when he sinned, he died forever. Now, he may have continued to live physically but he was dead spiritually and he was dead right from that moment eternally. The ravages of that, of course, would not occur until his physical death. And that's the way it is with unbelievers. We refer to unbelievers, not usually to their face, but we will say they are eternally dead. They are spiritually dead. They are walking dead men. That's why Ephesians 2.1 talks about unbelievers being dead in trespasses and sins. They are dead. They are dead even while they live. That's the sense 
of which Adam and Eve experienced with God right at that moment. When he said, you shall surely die, that's what happened. Now, did they die physically? Yes. Yes, they did. But of course, not immediately. But they did begin, believe it or not, at that very moment, the process even of physical death. Now, of course, it took those in the Old Testament a lot longer to die than you and I, but they also experienced the ravages of death. So did all creation experience the ravages of death. That's why Paul says in Romans 8 that creation itself groans for the remaking, the recreating of itself, groans in its body, as it were, because there is death, even physical deprivation, even physical degeneration. And Adam and Eve experienced that also, just not immediately. Ezekiel says in Ezekiel 18.4, or God says through Ezekiel, the soul that sins shall die. And that's what happened. They died physically, they died spiritually, and they died eternally. Do you want to know something about the sheer grace of our Creator God? He immediately mitigated the consequences of instant physical death. You glad about that? I'm rejoicing in that today. As I studied that this week, I was rejoicing in the grace of God not to have every single person upon their entering into the human sphere die physically because of the judgment of God. That's the grace of God, beloved. The grace of God is operative to us as it was to Adam that God mercifully mitigated the consequences and the ravages of sin, all kinds of sin, but especially the physical aspect of death because of His sheer grace, His unadulterated mercy. Because... He would have had every sovereign right at that moment as a righteous and holy God with all of His character fully intact to say, I gave you a prohibition. I gave you every tree of the garden. I gave you it all for the purpose of displaying my glory and my mercy and my provision and my guidance, my providence. I've given it all to you and there's just one prohibition in the entire created order. Just one. Do not eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Why? Was God holding something back? That was certainly the implication of Satan, wasn't it? Through the serpent. It may have been that the implication was God's holding something back for you, something good. But God wasn't doing that, was He? The sense of those passages in Genesis that talk about a knowledge of good and evil is the experiential knowledge of good and evil. God had given them every experience of good. How many times did He say, and it was good, and it was good, and it was good? And the creation of man, it was very good. The end of creation, it was very good. But God did not want them also to experience the ravages of the experiential knowledge of evil. That was the whole point. 
Do not do this, for in the day that you do this, you will have an experiential knowledge of evil. It will dog you all of your days. It will be in you. It will be with you. It will be through you. And you will experience all of the unfortunate, ghastly dregs of sin's curse. You'll know it all right. But you'll know it in the worst possible way. You see, God... It is said in Scripture, cannot look upon evil. God does not experience evil in that sense. He can't be tainted by it. He tempts no one, nor can anyone in that sense ultimately tempt God, seduce God to do evil. can't happen. His character is so pure, he can't look upon evil, can't experience it. And he was showing, both by prohibition and by desire, you shall not do this. If you do this, you will understand in the greatest, most ghastly, experiential way what evil really is. And God already was showing the angelic realm what evil was, right? And He didn't want the human beings that He had created to experience the kind of evil that He most certainly saw most certainly witnessed as Lucifer and his demon angels were cast out of heaven. It's a a terrible thing. We see all of the ravages of it in our world, do we not? We see all of the evidences of it. We see it not just in our world, but we see it in our own selves. And that's what God was saying. I prohibit you. Do not do this. But if you do, you're going to die. And we see it. We see the ravages of death. Every single time someone asks the question, whether it's the doubter or even the sincere believer, in an effort to either answer the doubter or answer those theological questions in his own life, why does God allow evil? Why is there evil in the world? Why is there evil toward little children, little people, the defenseless, the mentally incompetent? Why does God do this? Why is this in the world? Of course, the answer is that sin has entered the world through one man and death from sin. That's the answer. Someone says, I'm not satisfied with that. That's the answer. Death comes as a result of sin. Why is there evil in the world? Why is it perpetrated against those who seem to be so defenseless, who seem to be so unaware? Because sin has entered the world. It's entered the world through one man and death as a result of that sin. And sin as a result of death. It's introverted as well. It's sin as a result of death. I sin because I live in a world of death. I'm encased, as it were, in a human carcass of death. I live in a world of death. I make decisions based upon death. Death is sin and sin is death. And Adam and Eve, they made that choice. And Adam, being that responsible one, made the choice so that we might, as it were, be those ones who experienced death as well. And it's a hideous thought. Now you ask the question, as I wanted to, as everybody often does, what happened to them? What happened to Adam and Eve? Do we have any hints Do we have any inferences? Do we have any explicit statements? What was their ultimate plight? I mean, you can't ask the question 
Did they die physically without knowing that Scripture explicitly says that they died? Yes, that's true. It says he died. But you ask the question, what beyond death? What happened? Which is the inevitable question of us all. What happens beyond my death? What happens beyond the grave? That's the inevitable questions that are posed, especially about a text like this. And the answer is, what happened to Adam and Eve? If you have your thumb in Romans 5, go back to Genesis and look at Genesis chapter 3. Genesis chapter 3. This is, this is an answer. It's an inference. It might be this way, and I presume myself that there's some level of evidence that Adam and Eve were in fact saved, atoned for, because in Genesis chapter 3, you have this statement in verse 21. And the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them or covered them. It's not explicit, can't be dogmatic, but you might be able to infer that the God of the universe, God the Father, took animals and slay them himself and took their skins as garments to cover Adam and Eve. Now we say that that may be a reference, may be a reference to the idea of God prefiguring the very covering of Jesus Christ. Taking the garment of the robes of the righteousness of Christ, if you will, and put them on repentant believers. Maybe as well, God taking these garments of His own making and placing them over Adam and Eve. Garments, coverings. That's the best we can do. You ask the question, will we see Adam and Eve in heaven? And the answer is, I sure hope so. I sure hope so. This may be an implicit reference. It may not be. We can't be sure. But we might be able to say that in the grand scheme of the grace and the mercy of God, the first Adam, sinner though he may be, had that sin covered by the very garments of God Himself. God may have provided a way, a picture of atonement for the covering of sin. And it is true, of course, that Adam and Eve did eventually die. And the most important issue they faced was now, what about my eternal estrangement from God? What about this spiritual separation? Which we all will experience. We'll all experience that physical death. And the question in all of our minds should be, must be, will be, what happens after I die? What happens about this eternal death? What about this spiritual separation from God? What's going to happen to me? What's going to happen to my spouse? What's going to happen to my children? What's going to happen to my parents? What's going to happen to my friends? Will I, like God potentially did with Adam and Eve, clothe them in the garments, the garments of His own Son? And by the way, if Adam and Eve were in fact in heaven, if they are in heaven... It'll be only as a direct result of the righteousness of Jesus Christ, not those skins of that, that animal or animals. That's a prefiguring. If in fact they are in heaven and we will rejoice with them 
and the forgiveness of sins. It'll be because God looked at the righteousness of Jesus Christ and He looked at everybody from Adam and Eve all the way through the Old Testament up to the very point of the cross of Christ and He will apply the death of Christ on their behalf. All of those bulls and all of those goats and all of those sacrifices of the Old Testament, those were never designed in and of themselves to atone for sin. It was a looking forward. It was a picturing. It was a shadow about which the reality was to come and that reality is Christ. So if Adam and Eve are there with us in heaven... It'll be because of the righteousness of Jesus Christ and that prefiguring, that looking, even in the shadows, will be that which we will say, God, you're so gracious. You are so gracious. And I have to ask you this morning as we close, do you see the graciousness of God in this? You see the graciousness of God in your own life? You see how gracious God is in not giving us all three aspects of death, at least not immediately upon entering the world? You say, well, there are some who immediately die, infants who die in their infancy. Yes, that's true. We'll talk about that later. But there, for the most part, we who did not die on the basis of our physically entering into the world... And God is so gracious that He allows us to continue living even when we are in the midst of spiritual and eternal death. You realize that? When I quoted Ephesians 2 a moment ago and I talked about the idea that there are those who are dead in trespasses and sins, that is all of us before we come to Christ. All of us are dead, dead spiritually, dead eternally, until God reverses those things and brings instead of eternal death, eternal life. Instead of spiritual death, spiritual separation, God brings us life. He brings us from a point of hostility to a point of friendship. No longer any spiritual separation. God gives us spiritual life out of death. He gives us instead of eternal death, eternal life. And I suppose that's why the Bible hints at the reality that Jesus Christ was slain, as it were, before the foundation of the world. It was always a part of God's plan. People ask the question, well, if, if Adam didn't immediately physically die, what's the point? Because God knew, God foreknew that there was a plan that included the very death of Jesus Christ. That would happen at a point in time, in space and time, and that everybody from Adam onward would be offered this good news, the good news of salvation. And when those New Covenant believers were seeing that, that reality from the shadows, they knew it was Jesus, Jesus from Bethlehem, Jesus who entered the world as a baby in swaddling cloths, Jesus who came to a place of a public ministry and who lived a righteous life and who died an ignominious death so that you and I would be covered in the very garments of God. Do you rejoice in that? Oh yes, it could be and God would be fully righteous in doing so in allowing everybody who's physically born into the world to immediately die because of the judgment of God. Righteous would He be. And yet He mitigates that. You ever thought about that? You thought about the idea that as you have grown up in your life and even as you sit here this morning, 
you are the recipient of God's marvelous, wonderful grace to be breathing. Some of you may be here and you don't know Christ. Do you realize that you are here sitting in this pew and you've come here by the very providence of God and the very fact that you're breathing right now is evidence of His mercy and grace? And that as you sit here, you have the opportunity as you've received the very offering of the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, His death, His burial, His resurrection, that you have the opportunity to believe this morning, even While you're dead in your trespasses and sins, God can grant you life. Oh, the heart may be pumping. Uh, The blood may be coursing through the veins. But you are dead while you live if you continue to reject the offer of Jesus Christ. And if you are sitting here and if you are breathing and living and having that blood pump in a physical way, it means nothing. Unless you come to faith in Jesus Christ. Unless you see that the blood that's coursing through the veins of Christ are far more important than the blood that courses through yours. I want you to bow your heads with me. And as you do, I want you to do a spiritual inventory of your life. And if you're a believer, a true believer, can you not with me rejoice in the goodness of God? Jesus Christ was slain before the foundation of the world. And according to Ephesians 1, we have been chosen in Him before the foundation of the world. That even though we we die physically every day closer and closer, that that is the only death we will ultimately experience. The eternal death, the spiritual separation from God has been answered in Christ. Isn't that what God has done for you? You're sitting here as evidence of God's grace, isn't it? Your breathing is evidence of God's grace. You and I, upon being born into this world of sin and with our own sin, both in Adam and our own choices to sin, could have meant the righteous judgment of God on an immediate basis. Yet God, instead of immediately judging us in the physical dimension which would not have allowed us to respond at all, we would be in hell forever without any physical capability to respond to the offer of forgiveness through Christ. But He has saved us. He's given us not only physical life, but He's given it to us in order for us to have spiritual life. Oh, but if you're not a believer, you now stand at two of those three aspects of death, spiritual and eternal. And the only one that awaits you is physical. And if you die without receiving Jesus Christ, you will experience all three of those deaths, those aspects of death. And that is a terrible, 
terrible judgment. Before you die physically, believe on Christ. Believe on His atoning sacrifice so that you may see God's gracious answer for death itself. Oh, Father, I pray that those who receive the Lord's Supper this morning would do so with full hearts, with excitement, passion in their souls for the delivering of this death sentence. Oh, may we receive the Supper of the Lord in a rejoicing way, knowing that even if we were to die, even right now, even going home, even on this icy, slippery slope of even the weather, we would be delivered from death. Spiritual death, eternal death, and physical death would just simply be a passageway, a threshold to your glory to the beauty of your salvation. Oh Lord, I pray for those who are here and are not genuinely believing in Christ. May they do so now so that physical death will be merely the passageway into life eternal. No longer any spiritual separation. Lord, we affirm the truth of Your Word, death, death through sin. And we pray that You would have brought souls from death to life. In Christ's name, Amen.